lights will be on yet. Crank the speakers up. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another exciting episode of the Ghost Army Podcast. You might know my voice from a variety of other podcasts, but my name is Old Man Morin, and joining me tonight are two extraordinarily awesome hobbyists. On one hand, I have got the man who rides Grimlock into battle. He has the beard that ends all beards, makes Gandalf's goes to shame. And if you look at it too close, that little Chuck Norris fist gets you right in the eye. Of course, I'm talking the one and only Patchamus Prime. What's up? Hello, Brad. <laughs> I love it. Brad, Brad. Yes. I shaved a year ago. I know. I just can't stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> the, my favorite thing is... Um, by the time I finished with your introduction, you've probably painted another 12 DAC models. Is that right? Pretty much. Okay. Pretty much. By the time we finish this podcast, you'll have finished another three or four armies. Is that what I'm getting? Yep. Working towards it. <laughs> right on. Well, this next gentleman is, of course, another Ghost Army favorite and is, you know, how do you describe a man who doesn't paint one army at once? Doesn't paint two armies at once, but paints three armies at once, has painting guides on Warlord's website, amongst a million other places, is one of the most well-known legendary hobbyists in bolt action these days. Of course, I'm talking the one and only Brian Cook. Welcome back to your show. You embarrass me well, Brad. That's what I do. I love your humble interests. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's got to do it. Hey guys, how you going? Very good, mate. good, good. Yeah, ready. How are you, mate? How are you, how are you going? Oh, it's wonderful. It's a brisk evening in Melbourne. Uh, maybe the coldest of the year so far. So, uh, I, as a Bostonian, I do uh, chuckle loudly as people, you know, start complaining about the cold and people are dressed up in their winter woolies, and I'm still in my shorts. But you know. I'm sure the old man will catch up with me tomorrow, and I'll be wearing my sweater as well. But uh, I think that is enough talking about the weather, because there is a lot of great content to talk about tonight on the Ghost Army podcast. Patch, why don't you lead us out? Because uh, I know that you've got some great tips and tricks for us this evening. Take it away, man. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Let's get stuck straight into it. Um, I want to talk about a topic which is quite interesting, and... um you know, a few years ago, I, I probably could have really used this, but uh, it's just about for those people out there who, who want to increase their quality of hobby and really be in the running and contention for things like, you know, your best army, best painted, whatever variation that may be at events, there's mm. always there's always a, you know, an award or a, or a medal or a certificate or a pat on the back for, for, for that person who brings... Um, usually a player voted best army. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess, you know, if you want to think about competing for that, there's a couple of key things that you really need to consider at the earlier stages. I mean, um, you, you know, so you want to compete. Uh, let's think about, first of all, well, what army are you going to present? Uh, before you've even thought about the painting, you think about, well, what is it that I'm going to do? Um, and that's a really key factor. So, mm. 
I thought we might just talk us through a couple of those key things, and we'll start off, um, as I said, about what army you're going to present, and then I'm going to throw it over to Brian for what he thinks might be a second, the second tip or something else to consider. But for me, the, when, when going to look for an army um, and you want to compete for Best Painted, I think it's important to consider what other armies are out there. And, and just as an example, you know, in the last couple of events I've seen, it's it's probably pretty hard-pressed to get a best painted German late war army, for example. Mm. Um, and, and I say that because there's a lot of late war German armies competing for that particular thing. And what it, what tends to occur is that one army tends to blend into another. So one particular army won't necessarily stand out. So a key thing when you want to get best army is you want your army to be a to stand out from all the others that are on that that table. You want people to walk past and their eyes are drawn to it because perhaps it looks different. Um, mm. and, and so I guess in that context, you know, if you want to do a late war German army, it may be pretty hard to, you know, you're really going to have to do something pretty special to make it stand up above the others. Um, an example is for me, uh, you know, an army that I took, I guess the my most recent one that I uh, got a best army for was a desert French army. It was mm. different. It stood out, and, and people's eyes were drawn to it. Now, Brian, I'll throw across to you. What what do you think is another consideration at the early stages? I think um, that this award is obviously by its nature really subjective. So, I think both you and I will probably have like differing views as well as ones that cross over as to like what to do if you want to like have a go at that sort of a level with your hobby mm. um but the first thing i'm gonna say because because especially with play about you'll, you'll find people just get drawn to different things that they love as well so i don't think you can really game the system and sort of not saying you were saying that but you can't really like mm. oh i'm gonna tick these five boxes you know doing this particular army in this style with this sort of a paint job and i'll win a absolutely but i think yeah. what i think what you should start off at, at the very core before you even start picking up a paintbrush is work on something you really love yes like picking up pick an army pick a pick an army that you just go oh i just really want to bring this to life this is just a cool bit of history i've read or this is a great set of models that I, I want to paint so start with something you're really passionate about because then you'll really do well you won't it won't be a slog you won't be sitting there trying to churn through them and, and um mm. paint by numbers you'll really put your heart into it so Excellent start with point. subjects, yeah. and that's like you with you know you you've done it many times with your French because you just love love your French armies and you'll get right into it and you'll research them and pick the good models and love mm -hmm. lovingly paint them. Um, same with your Aussies as well. So, and that's what I always start with um, when I go to events is I pick an army that I want to paint anyway. Like this is how I actually pick my event armies is what what do I want to paint? Yeah. Um, then I'll work back from that about you know I don't really look at the list or play any lead up games much till the very end. It's more about what I want to paint and put on the table for the looks. Mm. So start yeah, with something, sure. something, something that you love for sure. And um, the other mm. thing like you were saying then too about the type of army, I mean, um, you can, you can choose say a late war German army and still do, do well. If you pick something interesting about it, like um, what I tend to get drawn to when I vote for people is an interesting concept of like an interesting force I haven't seen before. That's right. that's that's quite well researched and actually I look at it straight away. I know what it is. So it's like a specific yep. force usually. So if it's late war Germans and it's like a generic couple of squads from different 
branches of their army. Like, you know, there's an SS squad and an army squad and some Falschmjager and then a random Panzer IV. I'll go, oh, yeah, okay. Like, even mm. if it's pretty well painted, I probably won't vote for it because I love someone who's gone out and picked a unit. Like, um, I think there was a really cool army at CanCon. It was a Soviet army, actually. And you might not... If you look at it, he looked at it, it looked like a generic Soviet army type thing, but I looked closer and what he'd done is picked like, um, I think it was the liberation of Vienna or something right at the end of the war. Um, I think it was, I think it was Chris Berg and he had like, because it was like a big victory for the Red Army, he had like a camera crew there recording it and, and all the bases had rubble and it was, and it was really well nice. themed and had this huge big sort of mm. yeah, this overarching theme and a specific like you had it written down on a plaque even on the on the display base like what unit it was and then yeah. and what what the date was and everything i'm like that's so cool i love that so for me that yeah absolutely you know, that's right there. man so 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 one another thing that i hold on I hold on as hold well. on patch if i if i may i I really want to go back to a couple of things you guys have said. Um, so I've recently sure. run an event, um, and we're going to talk more about that later. But um, I, I ran an event called Operation Wolf. It was in Melbourne. Um, we had 24 players, which I believe was the largest we've had in Melbourne to date. And it was a really fantastic showing. Um, we had a ton of new players, and it was a, an event that was designed for new players. Um, but some of those new players were very established hobbyists from other game systems that were coming over to Bolt Action for the first time. Um, some of them were extremely passionate painters. And so what we got at Op Wolf was the, the painting game in Melbourne is usually quite strong anyway, but it just jumped through the roof. Um, and there was, there was three armies that were tied for first place for best painted as I was going through the votes. It got to all of them were equal until I literally got to that last vote and it pumped the last one up. Now, the three armies were one was a brand new SS army that no one had ever seen um, by a player named Ben Llewellyn, who's a very old school 40K player, beautifully painted P-dot camouflage all over everything. It was immaculate. Top hobby marks. But he was he had it sitting on a table that was um, that the bases kind of matched and it was it wasn't on a display tray. It, it didn't. It was just sitting there and people just went right by it. It was so beautifully camouflaged that people were like, oh, yeah, and just walked right by it. Um, the people who actually stopped to look at it were blown away at the detail on it because no one expected a quote unquote newbie to have something like that. Um, and it was, it was just a little something that caught my eye. So if you are looking to bring something to an event, keep in mind, contrast often works. Brian said this on podcasts in the past, um, often having a little contrast with your base, maybe. So the models pop out would, am I paraphrasing that right, Brian? Yep. That sounds, that sounds exactly what, what Brian and, and I have sort of been saying for a while, Brian. Mm. Um, yeah. and, that, and that brings me to the, yeah, to the, so, to the color composition. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So hold on. Um, just really quick. So there was two other armies there that, as I said, were tied. One was Tristan's Americans, um, and they are sensationally painted really beautiful. And um, that's Tristan from the bacon burgers podcast. And, um, his stuff was, you know, top marks, beautiful display board, everything sat in it. It, it just was excellent. Um, but it was again, also very well painted 
and it almost it didn't I guess it popped on its own display board, but it still blended a little bit. And then we had Muddy Funster, who is you know very prolific on the forums, who also has a beautiful pole army, and he's very passionate about. He's got one bolt action army, and he's been painting it forever. Um, and the models <laughs> themselves um, are because the Polish tends to be brown um, with the colors. It the army itself is almost a little drab and that's not saying his painting isn't great it's just the colors that the armies were but he made them pop because he's got two units of lancers in his army he had banners on each and every lancer lance um and of course that is the white and crimson or the right the white and bright reds of the polish flag um and so he had white and red interspersed throughout his army his tank his or his tank hat was beautifully camouflaged um he had his matching dice the white dice with the red orders on them and then special polish dice with polish emblems on them next to it and i think the total package is what pushed him over because he's the one who won um and again all three very talented painters um and Mm -hmm. you know I, i could see where that was going but just to getting to what Patch is about to say, I think contrast um, and having that white, that white and red like pop you in the eye as you walked by and hook you to the table to take a closer look, I think that definitely helped Muddy. Whereas Ben's um, beautifully painted army sitting on the table, people didn't know to necessarily stop at it. Does that? So I think going yeah. in now, Patch, <laughs> with your color, yeah, I think that ties in beautifully, don't you think? Yeah, exactly right. So, so a good example is Chris here, who, who always turns up to our events, um, and he's always got the late war German force. Now, Chris, um, as far as I'm concerned, is is a much better technical painter than me, um, in the sense that his detail is fantastic, his color, everything that he does is is, is on a higher quality than what I can produce. Um, however, the two differences, and I've beaten him on the last sort of three occasions that we've come up against each other, and what has come down to, in, in my opinion, is that color composition as opposed to the technical skill. Mm. Um, in that, it, again, if you were to put one of my miniatures next to one of Chris's, you'd say, well, look at Chris's, it's, it's so much better done than mine. Um, you know, the detail is great, but what draws someone's eye when they're walking past a table yeah. is a much sort of, you know, if you have a lighter army, and I'll give you two examples of, of forces and, and, you know, I'll say a DAC army, right? Mm. A DAC army is beautiful in that you can make it really pop off a table because it's light, you know, it's, it really stands out, um, yeah. whereas the detail on a SSP.camo is lost at that two-foot range and it kind of blends in and it looks brown or or green um and so unless like you said brian uh you said brad you know you go right up to that that guy's ss army and you could tell you go this is an amazingly painted force right but you go two foot backwards and it kind of just blends and people walk past it whereas they saw muddy with all these white and red and you know contrasting colors and and just the general composition and it drew their eyes so you know that's sort of my thing um brian what what about you got to remember the environment that your army is getting viewed in so it's often like a dimly lit games yes room or a hall um you also most of the players are, are sort of half like thinking about where they're playing next on what table or what mm. the matchup is to that rounds. They might be hungover and really tired, which is usually the case with us. Yeah. Gamers yeah. Or something. Yeah. They might so feel rushed can... into it or something. 
Yeah. So people yeah. don't have much time to scoot around the tables quickly and check all the armies out, especially at really big events. Um, mm. So I think what you need to do yourself a favor if you're going to like like labor over these models and do like the like you were talking about like the intense ammo schemes or something that really is quite hard to do make sure you do yourself a favor and um i would i would look at uh, a display board but i'm i'm not a massive fan to be honest of of really over the top display boards that distract from an army yeah i like simple display boards that help your army be it's in its context so if you've got a desert army if you have a nice you know simple desert display table with a couple of palm trees in the corner like your one patch something like that that just sets the scene for your yeah. force but isn't trying to compensate by you know you didn't build a huge um, you know city scape with all groups or something like it's kind of within reason so mm. i think a city mm -hmm. uh, sorry a, um, a scenic display board is kind of good to grab um attention just so people have a quick uh, quick second glance and also one that's uh, bright light or light colored if your mm -hmm. army's quite dark could yeah. really help you as well that's it and i think i think finally there um is i think that you, you've got to tell a story like you know a, a lot of the time and you, you sort of mentioned it about theming and stuff but you know just just make everything really gel together and, and so someone could look at it like um i think you were mentioning chris's army uh, the russians and, and various things it, it really helps so much if you can tell a story and have some fun with the miniatures like i love you know your legion guy brian who's who's you know he's gone a wall and he's he's got the bottle of wine on the on the ammunition crates yeah that's, um, that's what i was going to say next actually is you can extend your army story beyond yeah and the display board by doing some objective markers because they are probably one of the coolest ways to sell your army stories agree you can set yourself a challenge next time you're collecting a force and go how could i tell my army's story in three objective markers and make them most people absolutely because they've got a quick visual way of telling everyone what your army's about um mm. onto the battlefield you know you've got i've got some of the ones i loved uh um paul mcfarlane uh, he's a sydney guy here he's got a geberg's jaeger force for narvik um uh, norway uh, that campaign mm -hmm. so he's got like yeah. you know reindeer sleds pulling his guns or his objectives and that's just cool straight away you know where they are and what's going on Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely well what, what do you reckon guys if, if you're thinking uh about really wanting to compete as as a as a best painted army um a few things you know so you you got to pick an army you love pick an army that might stand out um you really got to have a think about your your contrasting and color compositions that you want to put down um you want to be able to tell a story that that the audience will easily understand um, and this can, you know, you can really help this out by doing, you know, simple yet effective display boards and also by, you know, spending some time and effort on um, objective markers and little things that are either amusing or, or, or just great fun um, throughout. Is there anything I missed there? Um, no. Um, <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Brian. One thing I was going to say that I did that I've done every time I've put my army in now is I make a little plaque which tells people what the force is what the year is what the, what yeah. the is and i sort of theme it in a bit of a way that you know i think i had a german one one year so that was in like sort of german text and it was mm -hmm. written in german and then the french one i did this year for my um my french foreign legion had the, the battle they were at and you know the, a little free french symbol on it just um like muddy's dice you know like they got little symbols or graphic mm -hmm. elements and things like that can sort of help 
you know package up that idea really visually quite easily well you can you can usually you know f print something off at office works in color and then you know glue it onto your display board and a couple of coats of pva glue will glue it down you know mm. uh, i years and years ago when i was playing 40k and i i know you'll have to excuse me it's a different game system but um i had my sons of helvis noise marine army and i had tour posters made a friend of mine who's very good with yeah um that's perfect photoshop literally made tour posters and we plastered the venue and people were walking around and this is what 150 player event and they're walking around going what is the sons of helvis business and it was like they were subtle that you know it didn't necessarily look like an army poster and people thought it was a real band and then one of my opponents was like oh you're that guy and um, he voted for me for best army, and my army was by far not the best painted. Um, but he was like, "That is awesome." The fact, and I had little speakers that played music that went with my army. <laughs> um, and I mean, I guess I used to do that more with 40k, and it's it's just a simple reminder that these skills are transferable. Um, I think that's yeah. My Valkyrie um. force, all my flying, you know, helicoptery kind of transports. I had uh, speakers built into my display board that played Flight of the Valkyries, um, that kind of thing. And that's yes, that is over the top. But if we see um, big U.S. events like Adepticon, people are starting to adapt those skills um, to bolt action, um, whereas before you may not have seen it as often. Um, mm, but it, mm. it, and I'm not saying you necessarily need to go bonkers, but as Brian's saying, just tell your army's story, um, in its objectives. And I think to what you were saying a minute ago, Patch, link that to your display board. Um, a couple of years ago, I, three or four years ago now, I took my, my, the Germans that were my first love in bolt action out for their last tournament spin. And I spent forever, literally two years painting that army. And then I hyper-detailed it right before I put it on the table for this event. And I was feeling really good about the painting award. Um, and I put it down and it got, you know, people looked at it and they were like, wow, that's amazing. And it got a lot of great compliments. And then I didn't, I ended up losing Best Painted to a guy who, a good friend of mine, Julian, who painted his army in, what, three days? Um, mm. But... My army blended into their bases, um, whereas he was doing a very, it was um, white uh, smocked late war German army, and his white was immaculate. And he basically, half of his army was half painted, but the white was done. And so because the white was so striking, uh, and this is all stuff he's told me, I am not just, you know, sucking grapes at the moment. He, he said, look, your stuff's much better technically painted than mine. This is a half finished army. But the white was finished, and so it popped on the table. And he was yeah. right. Um, and, and it just taught me that with my army, uh, I'm going to actually, I've been talking, you guys like the base on my Germans. You've seen pictures of them before. Um, yeah. I'm going to strip the bases off um, because I've made a display board that has holes for every model in it that the models sink into that's urban rubble that matches the new Rendra um, sort of dungeon crawly cobblestone bases. And I'm just going to rebase the army on those, you know, spend some time making the bases nice. And as you say, as both of you said, make the army tell a story. Um, and hopefully maybe next time I'll do better with it. I mean, I don't think given the quality of Melbourne scene now that I could win a best painted, I'm just not in your caliber, like either one of you, but I like, I, I, I want to put my best foot forward and it's not necessarily when we're talking about this that people are, you know, start 
planning these evil schemes to get best painted, um, you know, sometimes when the some of their friends may be better than them, I know that if I was in a pool against you guys, I would feel like, yeah, I don't have a I don't have a chance, but I still want to put my best foot forward. I want to have the best I can do. You know why, Brad? It's good the reason to have that attitude too, is because um, especially if we're playing bolt action at a big convention where there's other games going on, mm. if everyone sort of puts a bit of love into their armies, when people are walking around and they see bolt action and see the event, it looks spectacular visually and they go, ooh, I want to be part of that community because that this, like, this hobby, I think, um, is different to computer gaming and, say, maybe board gaming because of the visual aspect. The, sort of, yeah, the, the miniatures all painted up nice on a cool table. Like, nothing really beats that spectacle. Mm. So... Um, I think it's just cool to have pride in your force anyway and really go for it and push yourself and challenge yourself. Totally. Yeah, Brian, I, I think one thing I'd, I'd like to say before we move on to Brad's event is mm. that, um, you know, use, you don't get disheartened if you don't win. Mm. And and, uh, and I say that and, and set your sights on on whoever it is that's your unicorn and, they, <laughs> and that you say to yourself, all I'm going to do is I'm just going to keep getting better and, and my whole aim is to beat that person. Yeah. Um, now, my unicorn, of course, is Brian. And, um, you know, I've never been in a position where between the two of us on an even footing where I've, I've managed to, to get best painting over Brian. So I, I keep going and, and I keep going because I think one day, um, it could be 10 years from now, you know, Brian and I are going to face off in a particular contest. And, uh, you know, I hope to beat him on, on a level playing field. And that's what I aim for. You are um, gaining on me. I'm sweating. <laughs> but but it keeps it drives me to get better brian you know and i think yeah. between the and, and but the funny thing about us is that at absolutely no way in any shape or form have we ever um not encouraged each other to do that mm. and, and that's what makes it better is we're constantly you know occasionally you'd be like oh i did this thing and that's pretty cool and we'll share the techniques with each other because there's no I, secrets i mean yeah i mean that's the other really cool thing you were just reminding me of then is if you're in a community in your local area with Bolt Action and you guys have a Facebook group, that's one really great way to build up um, that good good spirit and and um, inspiration before an event on the lead up is if everyone's posting up their armies and um, what they're working on and how they're and striving to get, you know, a really nice result. And people, people like, share what they're up to and then also help each other. You end up with this really cool, like, raising the bar, sort of, so to speak. Yeah. Everyone's hobby gets better, um, and you inspire each other as well. So Facebook's That's good it. for that, actually. Yeah, Brian, if you didn't have people, you know, like me and a, and a few others pushing you, you know, and creeping up and learning everything that you're doing, you know, without that, you would probably not improve either. I don't think I'd be interested in being part of any game systems community where no, people didn't care about painting their models. I don't want to mm. play against other guys with great plastic figures. Like, yeah. I want to against um you know painted armies and if, if possible like people who would just love the the way the game looks they don't want to use like upturned ice cream containers as terrain you know they don't they want to paint their models and they want to play in beautiful tables because yeah that's what makes it um a really cool hobby for me so i just like being part of this community especially because i find that people maybe it's the scale falls actions act you know you're only really looking at you know 30 40 50 infantry in a couple of vehicles it's quite achievable to do a nice job on them mm. not not having to paint ten thousand figures um they get invalidated by a codex that comes out every three months you know yeah mm. so i'm finding that this is a really nice sweet spot i think for 
um, people hobby to, and game. They, they yeah. want to paint and they want to play. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, Brad, did you want to take us through? Yeah. Your event? Yeah, let's talk about that, I guess. Um, so I, as I said, I recently ran an event, Operation Wolf, 24 players in Melbourne, Australia. Um, we played at uh, the newly renovated Good Games Melbourne on Lonsdale Street. Um, Good Games, I guess, has been there for quite a while, and it's a chain across Australia. Quite a few people have it. Um, Brian, there's quite a few in Sydney. Patch, there's there yep. in Canberra too, right? Uh, I'm not 100% sure. We only have a couple of game stores here, so... okay. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100%. I, I mainly visit Jolt. That's Jolt Games mm-hmm. in Mitchell, who's a fantastic local uh, game shop who mm. I encourage everyone to go down and visit whenever they get the opportunity. Plug, All right, plug, that's plug. enough plug. Yeah, Bye. exactly. Yep. <laughs> right on. So so uh, Melbourne, ha- you know, we've always had some great game stores. Um, but the store that I usually used to run a lot of my events at um, never, never carried bolt action. It was a more of a Magic the Gathering store that had a big event space that I would rent out. Um, and that sometimes led to cultural conversations between staff and tournament players when they would be like, they needed certain table sizes and this sort of thing. And they're like, why would you need that? And you go, because we need that to play our game. And they're like, yeah, but just use the table that's there. And you go, that isn't how that works. Um, and so it was really nice to work with an event, with a venue um, that could provide the right tabletop sizes that were accommodating as far as um, scheduling, knowing how open, you know, how many hours we needed to run three games in a day. Um, and they actually opened early for us, which was fantastic. Um, and it was just really nice. So we had everything set up. And I, I went for a slightly unorthodox point size uh, for a couple of reasons. I went with 900 points instead of the usual quote-unquote thousand. And I hear quite a few people in the background in the internet yelling 1250 is the, the right level. Well, I understand that if you are running smaller point sizes, you often have to make some hard decisions. You have to leave some of your toys at home. And that was kind of the point. Um, plus, I was trying to really invite some players um, from other game systems that I was friends with to come out and play. Um, quite a few Malifaux players came out and quite a few old 40K folks came out, um, which was just fantastic. And people came because they didn't have to paint a huge army. 900 points, um, quite a few people painted three to four squads, a tank, an armored car. Um, we saw quite a few half-tracks. And it was just really easy for people to come in and play. Um, and as such, I did, I was very specific in the player pack and I said that this, you know, I, I encouraged experienced players, um, to experiment with some new stuff, um, that maybe, you know, they wouldn't possibly consider in an open event normally for fear that it may not be, you know, quote unquote optimized or efficient enough. Um, and I really tried to encourage people to, to take fun stuff, um, and it was great. I mean, out of, I had 26 people register. Two people, unfortunately, had to drop one from work and one from plague. Um, but of, of that, um, no Panzer IVs. Um, so I know a lot of people are saying, ooh, 900 points. You know, you're going to see Panzer IVs all day long because Tiger Field would be great at 900 points. There weren't any. Um, there wasn't a huge proliferation of any of the stuff that I was expecting to get. Um, don't get me wrong. There were resubs. Um, I had a few. Um, there was a player that turned in a list with a couple of uh, M3 Stuarts um, just to keep that global meta going. 
Um, and I bounced that one back, um, and he came back with uh, no Stewarts, um, but he did have a Satan, um, and he wanted to play around with that, and he did, and it was a good time. So I was really pleased. Um, people seemed to have a really good time. The podium, uh, the middle player on the podium, um, second place, actually went to a first-time bolt-action player on his fourth or fifth game of bolt-action. Extremely old school war gamer. I've played him in at least three game systems. Um, Pip, my old buddy, um, and he brought out a brand new Finn army and came second. And his Finn army was so, had, it had all of the teeth pulled out of it um, because he really didn't want to be the guy who showed up with an army that people would, you know, cast a hairy eyeball at. And so he had a T6, a T26. Um, he just had a lot of basic riflemen, a couple of LMGs, I think he did have one um, cut—I can never say it right—cut a patio. The guys who come on behind you, but that was because he really wanted to try the rules. Um, but everything in his army was really reasonable. Um, Muddy, as I said, um, came well. He got best painted, um, and he came first, so um, he did very well. And it was just—it was just a really fun atmosphere overall. Um, and, that, I, and that was with a 1939 Polish army that. Um, it's cool to see, you know, it's like the earliest of early war armies. Exactly. And so we had Poles, we had Australians, um, there were partisans, uh, and there was just a whole pile of really wonderful armies. Um, and uh, sure, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of Germans. We had some late war Germans. Um, as I said, Ben's SS were brand new. But no one took anything that was particularly awful. Um, everyone took stuff and had a good time on the day. Uh, I was just really, just really excited about everything that happened. Um, more than that, I was excited that there were eight new players that had never really competed in a bolt action event, and I was able to give out a best new player award, and it went to the guy who came fifth, uh, and it was just awesome and just just such a good vibe around the place. And oftentimes, you know, when you run an event, when you, so I was painting terrain up until, um, you know, 11 o'clock the night before, um, just to make sure I got stuff on all the tables. Um, and I feel like we had a really good range of terrain. Um, we had two tables that were relatively open and two that were hyper dense. Um, one that was a city board and one that was jungle, um, and then we had a nice mix of everything in between. I know on a couple of other podcasts, people have said they often think that maybe in Scotland or in the UK, there's m more terrain on the tables than we have here. Um, I was very cognizant of that when I designed this, the tables for this event. And I felt like we had more than enough terrain. Um, and that really didn't affect, you know, what people took. Um, and it, yeah, people just enjoyed enjoyed themselves it was just a really nice relaxed attitude and it really invigorated me to do something new for bolt action um i've been doing my masters for a long time and so i've just been painting a, a tank here a truck here um little things here and there but i haven't actually started a new army in a really long time and that's kind of got me thinking well what if i do something completely different and a long time ago i had a soviet black death army that I sold to Brian. Hey, Brian. Um, hey. <laughs> uh, so he still has that. 
But uh, I'm thinking that I might re rehash the Black Death and bring them back out. Um, and I've been slowly a- accumulating models for that. Um, and just to go back to what you were saying with Army's earlier patch, you know, a wall of black on a tabletop, that might stand out a little bit. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, I, I don't think, again, I'm going to win a Best Painted Ever, but I think it'll be a lot of fun to play. And I want to sort of challenge some of the metas that people are talking about on other podcasts um, and just have a good time with it. But to go back to Operation Wolf, um, is there any questions you guys had about the event itself? Um, I ran three missions. They were all out of the old um, boltaction.net mission pack that's online. Um, that's still around. Um, and, yeah. Mm. Well, I guess, I guess, Brad, you know, from my point of view, I think, um, how many players did you say were there? 24. So so outside of the, the major events, you're, you're pulling in quite a crowd down there in Melbourne. And I guess, you know, you mentioned there were so many new players that were, were coming in. What was your general feel from those new players about, um, you know, will they come to the next one? It, was the vibe good or were they like, meh, I'll go back to 40K or, or whatever? How, how, what was your take on it? Nah, everyone who was new to the event um, that I knew prior to the event. There was a couple of new players, two out of the eight I, I actually didn't know. Um, but the other six all came up to me and said, and I think the other two did is, had a good time as well, but the six came up to me and they, all of them had a wonderful time. At least that's what they told me. Um, I know that people were literally buying armies, um, new armies or new models for their armies the day after the event mm. because people kept sending me private messages with pictures of, look what I'm adding to my army. Um, and it was just, it was awesome. Um, it was just such a, a great atmosphere that people wanted to, you know, people were looking at each other's armies going, oh, that you can do that or you can do that. And it was just this wonderful moment. The guy who got best new player in his, I think in his third game, rolled, um, you know, boxcars on, uh, on an orders test, and his opponent yelled, FUBAR! And, you know, Ramon's a very experienced wargamer, had read the rules for bolt action quite a few times, um, had played even a, a fair few times with his mates. Um, he and three of his friends have sort of a, a close circuit arms race that they were playing around, but they were still learning the game, and he'd never heard of the rule FUBAR before. He'd missed it in the rules. And you know, he, you know, the giant grin came out on his face and he laughed and he rolled the dice. and He's like, I'm shooting my own guys. This is amazing. I love this game. And you just, you know, that little moment um, sort of cemented just how much I love the event for myself. I mean, it was just great. It was just, you know, it was just a lot of people having a great time learning the game system um, and, you know, there were lots of experienced players there, too, who were pushing armies. Um, and there's some really challenging matches that happened in that event that, um, you know, winning in that event was highly contested. Uh, and the fact that there were so many new players uh, just speaks volume of the quality of player that was there. And people were just having a blast laughing. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the store people who were running it on the day um i guess employees came up to me later and kept saying wow you guys are a lively bunch you know we get some game systems and people you know just quietly look at each other and push things around and you know press their chest clocks and you know it's very precise you have to be very precise meanwhile you know people are yelling and throwing dice and it was just fun and 
that's what I was hoping it would be. So I am definitely looking to run something later this year. Um, and I'm actually in the talks with someone kind of big in another city who wants to do maybe one of the big landmark events, maybe put Melbourne on the map. So hold that space. Um, we'll see later this year, there might be something big in Melbourne town. So, um, again, I have to, I I have to thank our, our sponsors. Of course, that was the other thing. New players couldn't believe how many prizes we were giving away. They're like, "I'm, I'm sorry, what I get a what, but I, I came second last. Yep. You get a thing. You get a $45 box. And they're like, but, why? And I was like, well, that's just how we do it. Um, and that comes down to, I mean, the huge generosity of Warlord Games um, and War and Peace Games, the local distributor. We just had so many prizes that it was ridiculous. Um, and then Trenchworks, of course, um, I love those guys. They also sent out prizes. Uh, and it was just, it was a wonderful day. I'm going to stop talking because I'm talking too much. But um, I, I just, I encourage people to go to events um, and run events that aren't out to stab people in the back or, I don't know, that aren't even closed, you know, circuits of competition to just try something new, have some fun, because everyone there was trying something different. And I think everyone learned something on the day, and it was just a great time. Brad, that's the, that's the thing I wanted to say before. I, like, I, I know a lot of people go to events to compete, and and that's totally fine because mm. you know that's that's what they're set up for. But what I like about events the most is how it grows a community if it's done well. So mm. if it's not purely only about the competition and who won and everything else doesn't matter, you know, if it is set up in a way where you've got you know you know best army awards, you've got an encouragement of bringing people bringing you know lists that are going to be fun. Um, you're encouraging new players to take part. You're in, you've got great tables coming. You've got people taking pride in their armies. If you've got everyone sort of coming at it from those those many angles, when new players do join in and they are in that environment and it's the sum total of all those different positive elements around them, it's just great for community building because you, those guys, you know, shoot it by the numbers, have a good time, and they'll come back. And then each time you're getting more and more people together. Agreed. And um you always slowly build up your community and, and that's just, just always a good thing. Yeah, I I just I couldn't I was really pleased with the quality of playing as well. Um people set up and the just watching the games were nail biting. Um, especially since I was watching so many at once, I was, you know, running from one table to the next to see what was it, happening. It's great fun being, being the organizer, right? Yeah. I actually really enjoy it. You get to watch you get to spectate on all these games and there's no pressure on you to have to play play yourself or be fast or anything. You can just enjoy it. It's quite cool. It is. I do actually have to say something. I actually said something wrong a minute ago. Um, Muddy Funster came third. Pip came second. And, of course, Rob White, um, formerly of the Bacon Burgers. I think he may be on their most recent podcast that's about to come out. Um, he won. Sorry. that was, <laughs> Oops. <clears throat> oh, yeah, cool. Um, yeah. He had chipmates, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And he, he had um, yeah, he had a Chinded Army. I think he was running them as Australians. Um, he had a Bofors heavy auto cannon. Like he really, he he had some fun stuff. He had a Lee. Um, he had some stuff that you don't normally see on the table. He took the challenge um, and ran with it, and quite a few people did. It was awesome. Now, you know, Brad, you and I spoke in the last episode of the Gap about what we've been up to mm. for a while, and and sure, I, I've probably painted 
a bit since the last episode, but we, we sort of generally covered off on what we've been up to um, whilst we'd had our little sort of intermission. Um, but, of course, we haven't heard from Brian yet. And, uh, you know, last, last episode it was just you and me, but this time we've got Brian. And I think we should hear a lot about Brian because Brian has a lot to say. Um, so, Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been up to, you know, probably, what, over the last six months? Um, and then what, what you're going to be up to over the next six months? Yeah, well, um, yeah, that's the thing. Six months ago, we just had our firstborn child, so that's been the new era of hobby, to, you know, getting that worked in around, mm-hmm. <laughs> around uh, looking after little humans. So that's been really interesting learning curve that I'm sure you know a lot about, Patch. Um, yeah. And you've given me a lot of advice over the text messages of the last six months. Um, and, um, yeah, we, our, our little one has been um, really – she's really busy and very alert. So she, I was expecting a lot more painting time because I had heard that newborns, like, sleep a lot. And, and, you know, as long as you're sort of sitting next to them, you can get a lot of painting done. But that wasn't no. the case for us. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> fine. But it's, it's actually sent me on a, off on a bit of a – journey of looking for shortcuts like to get the models painted i wanted but quicker so there's been some interesting experiments with that um i think you put me on to the zenithal highlighting the primer yeah. start off yep. with a shade of primer of just using spray cans or an airbrush that's been really cool actually um and i know you you usually start off with like a dark gray or a black and then overspray with white so it sort of shows that's you where right. everything is yeah um if you haven't seen that, guys, um, maybe Google Zenithal with a um, Z-E-N-T-H-I-A-L. And um, there's basically a way of when you're priming your model, it does pre-shading so you can sort of see where the shadows will, and highlights will be. Um, and I've started doing that now and sort of to put my own twist on it, I did, I've been doing coloured ones because I'm a big fan of coloured sprays to get my basic colours on so I don't have to paint them. Um, so I've been painting right. these... Um, the, some some Russians at the moment with that technique and it's going quite well because they're in sort of big great coats and things like that so big areas of like smooth cloth this spray technique just is gold because um, for instance I've got um, in front of me at the moment um, um, the, the Soviets I've got I think I wanted to have a bit of a motley look to them so there's some that are sort of a greenish based uniform and some that are more khaki but you um you kick them all off with with a black spray and then you just overspraying with these lighter colours. So for the green ones, I'm using the Plastic Soldier Company um Russian green spray, and then on top of that, I'm using this Games Workshop colour. I think it's um it's Nurgling something. It's like a really light green, and give it just a burst of that from above, and it just before you've even picked up a brush, it looks almost half done. And so I just want to say, Brian, one one thing that triggered my memory is is you know I, I've just painted up. A, a squad of 12 DAC and you know I followed your your sensational painting guide on the DAC and, and if anyone ever wants to have a great easy to follow guide for DAC go and have a look for it for what would it WWPD um, DAC painting guide Brian something along those lines it'll come up quick yeah but one of the colours that I'd never really used before um, jumped out at me. I gave it a good crack, which is I think it's called green yellow. Yeah, I was going to guess it's that one. That is such an amazing colour. Beautiful colour, and, and I used it for the first time. Uh, are you are you using that on those Russians as well? Yellow green? No, I'm not. Um, I'm using. Yeah, that that that's just too bright for what I wanted on these guys. Um, but I am using what I am using that for is. 
because it's such a different green to all the other sort of khaki sort of or darker greens, I'm using it for like odd things like gloves or those winter wraps that the Soviets are wearing where I needed just some other colour that wasn't the uniform colour but still wasn't, you know, bright red or something. So, um, yeah, I have used yellow green but only in very small amounts um, okay. on gloves, gloves or, or wrapping. So it, it, But it's perfect for dark and, um, yeah, just a really vibrant green. It's really cool. It doesn't look over the top or fluoro. Um, it's like the orange, the orange brown that you put me onto that I use on yeah. every model now. <laughs> Vallejo, Vallejo orange brown. If you're out there and you're painting your your World yeah. War II stuff, it's perfect for wood grain like um, the rifle stocks because it just it, it stands out. It helps create contrast, like Patch was saying before, with the rest of your model, which usually has you know other browns on it for the webbing or the boots or the uniform itself. So these That's these really sort of colors pop are good. Yeah, so Brian, I just had had something I, I sort of mentioned when you when you brought up, of course, your, your daughter and um, and that I, I feel like you're just still an inexperienced lieutenant, and uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm like a regular captain now, so I'm doing quite well. But and, and Dave Bruggerman's like a, I think he's a, a lieutenant colonel or something by now, veteran. <laughs> he's he's got all the kids. Um, but but the one thing that I noticed as a parent is that your your free time is so much less. But what you can achieve with the minimal free time you have has has increased dramatically. You can achieve a lot in a minimum period of time because that's all you've got. Have you found that as well? Yeah, you have to be very efficient. Um, you can't muck around. So I like – I was kind of used to that anyway because I like painting armies um, and getting like like a lot of stuff painted. So I, use, I, I, I follow the same principles I'm doing now but – um, in terms of having like an area that's always set up to paint at, I don't have to pack it away. I keep it clean, so obviously yeah. not imposing on anyone. But I can keep it in a social space in the house, like within the living room, so I'm not tucked away off by myself. I'm I'm with the family when it's appropriate and and the stuff set up. So even when you go to spare ten minutes, you could be painting some bases or um, you know just things that is always on the go and and. You know, you might not get those big blocks of time anymore, but if you've worked out your color scheme and you've got your color, I even like line my colors up in an order, like from left to right in front of me of what I've got to do for the stages. So if yeah. I'm sleep deprived or I've only got 10 minutes, I look down and go, okay, what's the next color I was doing? Oh, the boots. All right, cool. Or the flesh or whatever. So I'm not thinking too much and spending time trying to remember what I was doing because you're doing it in, in bits and pieces all over the place. Yeah. So I find that helps too. That, that's cool, and and I think you'll find, as as you know, you, you become more experienced as a dad, that free time, you know, becomes less and less, but it becomes so much more important um, to you is to the ability just to zone out and do some painting. Um, it, it, it's sort of a really interesting little thing, is that you know, painting is my meditation, my outlet, <laughs> you know, and it's very important to me. Yeah, it's, it's it's like people are. I mean, things are popular. Things are getting really popular these days. Are like um, you know, adult coloring books and mindfulness and and all these sort of you know hippie stuff that all the all the regular people are getting into that you know we've known as hobbyists for years. You know, like <laughs> these um these sort of you know crafts style hobbies where you don't have to spend a hundred percent of your brain or stress or run arounds. Like they're quite good for your mental state. And funny, Brian, I had a um. I sort of almost had a, a pinnacle moment on the weekend where 
my, my three kids now who are six and, and the girls turned five and five in a week. Um, and they, they watch me painting, you know, when they can, they see the miniatures, they want to be part of it and yeah. they all want to paint miniatures. So we had a bit of a, a couple of sessions now where, you know, I've been in on a few of those bones kickstarters. So I have like a thousand of these like mm-hmm. you know, miniatures, which they play with anyway, cause I can't destroy. Yeah. And so, we just lined them up and I let them had a brush each and I'd put paint down while I sat down and was painting some whatever miniature I was working on. They all worked on their, their uh, little bones miniatures and they each, each sort of, you know, smashed out about a dozen of these bones miniatures in half an hour, an hour. Um, and of course they look like something Nurgle has spewed out, but they, <laughs> they were so proud of, of each, each and every one of these. But for me, it was such a proud dad moment to have all three of my children sitting around me all painting at one time. That's um, cool. that's and and awesome. that's, you know, I reckon, you know, it's that, look, this is where you will be in five years. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty cool feeling, man, just to include the family and they're learning about it. And, you know, and you can watch them pick up your really good Windsor and Newton brush, for example, while you're a little bit distracted and, <laughs> it, but, you know, halfway through the paint and smear it on their model and then look at you with that proud look like, look, Dad, I've just done an amazing thing. And meanwhile, your heart's going 100 miles an hour going, how am I going to recover? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, over the like, what Well, else? there's so many things to look forward to. It's going to be awesome. It's great. You know, include the family. If you include the family, your wife is happy because the kids are occupied and you get to paint. It's all good. Yeah. Well, I'm, so, I'm, quite, I'm quite lucky in that regard. My wife um, really enjoys painting as well. She doesn't get very much time for it, but, um, you know, she and she doesn't really um, really love the World War II setting, but for things yeah. like, um, you know, fantasy settings and stuff, she paints a lot of those miniatures um, together, so we'll sit next to each other and I can awesome. talk her through techniques and stuff like that. She finds it quite enjoyable and we've got, like, a couple of those IKEA glass cabinets from um, that everyone seems to have for their miniatures. Yep. We have them in the garage. She's really proud of her shelf, which has her miniatures on it that she's painted, so I often, like, catch her just out there just looking at them like I do. She used to pay me out for it. Now she understands. Like once you've painted a few miniatures, you, you do enjoy going and having a little gaze at them sometimes and reminding yourself you did that, you know. It's fantastic. So so tell us about, you know, some of the projects um, more you're working on now. Yeah, and, well, the, reason, yeah the reason I've been so quiet um, and haven't been on the cast for a bit, we've had some pretty major projects. So obviously there was building a baby that happens. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then after that, there was CanCon in January. And um, that's the number one event for us here in Australia. So I always wanted to go and I always try and bring a new army that I haven't taken to anywhere else. So um, every year I'm usually find myself painting through Christmas time to get an army done for January. So this year I chose one, I sort of had half sort of painted already because, you know, think time was tight. So I went with um, a French foreign legion army for the, the free French in 1942 when they're fighting as part of the British forces in in um north africa against the the africa corps and the italians and that's the pdf that i worked on like i used the army list pdf that warlord um put out as unofficial um and that was written by myself and lou um who's an expert frenchman on the forums um so it was a cool like chance to actually play with a list i'd sort of researched and written a few years back but i hadn't had a chance really to play because i hadn't finished painting them so I used it as an opportunity to sort of finish off this project, which I started years ago and hadn't finished. Um, so for that, I just sort of added a bunch of vehicles and a couple of new squads that I hadn't, that were sort of half finished. Um, and I didn't 
like that sort of an army, like the French in 1942 in the in the PDF that that I worked on, that that's a really defensive army for like a siege situation. Yeah. So in mm-hmm. desert, there was a there was a fortress, and they they held their own like the flank of the Allied army against Rommel and the, the Africa Corps trying to get around them to outflank and take the British out. So that sort of a list is obviously really defensive and static, but um, they also did send out really like mobile, like jock columns, which is like the British term for these sort of mixed columns of vehicles and artillery um, and tanks. Um, actually, no, no tanks, um, armoured cars, truck borne infantry and some some artillery, um, especially like the porty artillery where they put like a, a cannon on the back tray of a truck to keep it mobile and they, they'd go out and do raids. And I yeah. thought, you know, at at, at CanCon and at events, I don't really like really super defensive armies because they take the games take a long time. Um, you you don't get to do as many ballsy exciting moves because you're mm-hmm. kind of hanging back most of the time and trying to shoot people up. So I, I chose to yeah I chose to to pick this jot column formation from the French Foreign Legion that was there, not the particularly like the siege you know entrenched guys. So um, I took a lot of Bren carriers. And these really funky armored cars that the that the foreign legion had made out of trucks. They got these Chevy trucks. Um, they actually captured them from the Vichy French in Syria the year before. And what they'd done um, in in Syria, the French garrisons there had bought all these American-made Chevy trucks and then up armored, like put armor plating up and, and like a fighting compartment in the back with like a turreted gun. Um, a bunch of pintle guns coming off. It was like gun shields over the windows. It looked like something out of Mad Max almost, you know. Awesome. Um, and I've, ever since I saw a photo of one of these things, uh, you called a Dodge Tanaki. And ever since I've seen one of those on, on Google when I found it years ago, I'm like, that is the coolest looking thing ever. So I found out Perry Miniatures made one. Mm-hmm. You can get one from them in their French range. And um, they're a funky little vehicle in bolt action because they're kind of cheap. Um, they're not particularly awesome, but... You know, it's mobile and it's got guns on it, so it's gonna, fun. it's gonna it's gonna do something if you can use it. Um, so I had had a pair of these Dodge trucks with the armor all over them, and then three Bren carriers full of foreign legionnaires, backed up by a couple more squads of legionnaires and a any tank gun. So there was no HE, no flamethrowers, no snipers. It was like almost all small arms mm-hmm. and one AT gun, but it was really mobile. So. You had to, yeah, like when I was playing against all these different various forces and on various tables in Canberra with that, those French guys, they were like, you you had to go for it every game. Um, just be decisive and pick what you're going to do and just go through with it <laughs> no matter what. So Yeah, it's a great army. It's like Steve's, Steve Drury's army as well, you know, yeah. similar concept. Um, it was great, yeah, really good yeah. to watch. I took on that. I took on that sort of early war theme that, or challenge, sorry, that you'd laid down on on our Facebook group here in Australia before the event too, because, um, you know, there's there's a, a a very reasonable you know reason for taking late war armies because you get access to more equipment, it makes it a bit easier when you don't know what you're going to face. But mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the challenge of knowing I didn't have anything bigger than an anti tank rifle or a, I think it was a medium AT gun, like one of them, a regular one. That's all I had for AT. Um, but it was still really fun, I, and the, everyone I played against was really great. So I was more happy just to get that army finished for the painting-wise because it had the had all these trucks and brand carriers and squads sort of sitting in the garage for years. So it was just a great opportunity to get them finished and on the table. In the shame pile. Yeah. yeah. I, even, I even went as far as when I went and found a, um, a Foreign Legion cap on eBay so I could wear it while we're playing. 
else. And I, I peeped dice from Dice of War with the Foreign Legion symbol on them, like got right into it. Mm-hmm. And that was fun. So that was like up to January. And then since then, I've um, kicked off a pretty major project, which will take me through the first half of this year. Um, just calling it Project Budapest because it's collecting three armies or like from the same campaign, the same setting. Um, I'm not necessarily painting them one after the other either. I'm sort of mixing it all in and painting a squad of this and a squad of that from the different forces as I go and just sort of building these three armies slowly, um, the Soviets, the Germans and the Hungarians. So, awesome. Um, yeah, it's been really good. Like there's a lot of um, interesting research and um, into this area because it's not like a campaign that is well-known, I guess, in English-speaking um, history areas. So mm. it, it takes place around the same time as the Battle of the Bulge, pretty much on top of each other. So we tend not to hear about it as well for that reason. Mm. Um, but it's really fascinating stuff. And there's a lot of new books that have come out from Hungarian authors that have been translated since about 2012. So there's a lot more information around these days too. Mm. And we're all sort of chipping in and, and mucking, you know, throwing some uh, some miniatures around as well, aren't we? Yeah, I've sort of like, you know, wrangled you guys into it too. So most of the crew, um, except for Brad, I've been painting models to, 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 as part of this. So you've just painted up a big um, heavy tank force for the Soviets with the IS-2s, a platoon of those and some T-34-85s, which look all beat up and awesome and weathered and um, <laughs> they look amazing. So that's, that's part of the mix. And um, we've got... Um, Dennis from the Belt Action Alliance, him and his father, and um, who's an absolute artist, are just creating the terrain because it's one one quite cool thing about the campaign is it's a huge urban siege, like it's a city city battle. So the terrain is just you know so important to that, and um, they've taken up the challenge to create Budapest during the siege. So it's just like he. Um, they've actually gone and found photos of the siege and the buildings in it, and they're using these photos as reference to scratch build exact buildings based off these photos. Um, it just looks amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we'll see. We'll have more on that on the page, especially if you go to our if you go to our Facebook page. There's a area that you can click on for photos, and then within that area there are albums. So if you go into the album section, there's one called um, The Siege of Budapest. And what we're doing is all three of us and four of us or whoever's involved are just chucking more photos in there as we go into this big sort of working work in progress folder. It's a mixture of terrain and models and vehicles and, and historical photos and everything like that to do with the big projects. So you can, t- you can check out some of these buildings and patches, tanks and, and my infantry in there to just see what we're up to. And you can ask questions and stuff as well. Because we're sort of yeah. researching that now as well, having a read and trying to find more information. Because I'm really like funky and interesting units there. I'm just looking at my painting desk at the moment. I've got your sort of standard Soviets, but they're not. They're they're, they're not super standard either. They've got they they learnt from Stalingrad by this point and created sort of specialist urban fighting units as well. They sort of reorganised themselves when they went into the city. And there were these storm groups with like, or everyone had SMGs. And they were bringing up their sort of small artillery by hand and pushing it down the street to sort of fly directly into windows and stuff because they couldn't bring artillery observers in. They couldn't see anything very at very long range, so everything had to be done street to street. So we've got some of that happening. We've got um, various SS units. Um, 
And they're all uh, really bizarre ones, like cavalry units and things like that. They had to sort of get off their horses and um, fight on foot because they sort of just found themselves by accident trapped in the city. Um, so that's been interesting, trying to work out how to represent these sort of winter SS guys who were cavalrymen but now fighting on foot in an urban environment. So there's been some cool sort of visual stuff to use. And um, Warlord, they're, they're metal Germans that they've been bringing out the last two years are just incredibly good oh, oh yeah. sculpts. Yeah, like I, I can, I can, I haven't seen those the latest German ones that they they've brought out, um, but I can we just to, to the Australians are just amazing. Yeah, they're beautiful. The Australians are they're, they're one of my faves too. These um these Germans have been mixing the because they tend to bring out like a metal box of ten figures, mm-hmm. but. And like so, there's like you know SS Charlemagne was a few years ago. I know you painted those patch. Yeah. There's, there's the the latest Winter SS and these huge parkers and with these big fur lined parkers. They're really cool. And then you've got your, your Winter Grenadiers. Um, you've got Luftwaffe Field Division. Um, so there's like four boxes you can mix together, and they're all different, but they all actually look good mixed in. Like you wouldn't be able to tell they're from different ranges or anything. So you can get a lot of variety, which which I've done. I just I don't don't particularly like enjoy um, I don't enjoy assembly that much. So I've stuck to metals for the Germans where I could. <laughs> you and me both. Yeah, uh, so you and me three. <laughs> but man, I tell you what though, I can hats off to anyone who paints an SS army because the camo scheme. I don't. I'm like I'm talking about probably any of them are all comparable. I'm doing the sort of autumn one where it's like a bright orange. Um, a dark brown and like this pinkish light brown and it's it's all these little dots and broken up like amoeba pattern sort of shapes and man it takes so long to do and it is really really tricky it's probably the hardest thing i've painted um but it looks cool so i'll that's another reason why i'm also mixing the forces i'm not painting them all like all the ss in one go then all the soviets in one go because they go insane yeah Mm. excellent man but like you said you know when you're when you're getting into those details on some of these germans it's like what's going on when will this end (laughs) yeah you paint them in small amounts and then you take a break so i've done like one squad of these ss and now i'm painting a bunch of soviets i can probably paint about i'd say about 25 soviets in the same time it would take me to do 10 ss yeah but yeah yeah, it's all coming together. It's all good, and um, yeah, we'll be we're, we're constantly posting up um, the, the what we're working on on our page and in various bolt action pages. If you want to follow and check it out, see what it turns into um, later in the year. We, we don't know yet. It could be a because um, of the terrain, which is so spectacular, and because of the amount of models that penal people are all sort of we're all painting for this. That we could end up putting it on as um, like a demonstration game at a, at a big event or. Uh, maybe we do a really big battle report or something where they post all the photos up. We'll just we'll be doing some stuff like oh, that. Yeah, I'm pretty committed, Brian, to you know building up a small Russian force to go with those IS twos. Um, and, and so I'll be following your lead on that as well. And it'd be nice to be able to have that um, have that sort of little veteran force ready um, of late war Russians. Yeah, man, I think you're gonna love it. Like having having those big heavy tanks with some tank riders just just. Yeah. You know, 
ready to jump off the sides and, and go for it. Like, it's such a cool, fun army. I think it's going to play so differently to everything else you've got in your collection. Yeah, probably, I reckon, my, my prediction is you're going to fall in love with it and you'll probably be one of your favourite armies because I think there's nothing nothing cooler than having these huge Armour 10 tanks that you just drive up into people's grills and they can't, they panic, and then you've got these squads jumping off with the submachine guns up everywhere. Yeah. You just don't, you almost don't care as well. You just just run forward. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's something like that project that you're talking about is is something that I'm ready for now. You know, I I, I certainly have avoided late war a lot, and uh, the little forays I've done into it, I've I've kind of like had you know tentatively had to step in and then quickly pulled my you know foot back and gone back to my comfort zone. Um, but I think I'm ready to to branch out and start looking at some of that late war stuff and. Uh, the Russians seem to be a really appealing factor just due to the, the sheer amount of um, options you've got. Yeah, absolutely. I think they, they're also really versatile because the way you paint them, they're not going to be restricting themselves to a time period because their uniform right. is almost the same the whole way through. So I think the IS-2 comes on the scene in late 43. So you can play almost a mid-war force with those guys or if you change the tanks, the infantry, you don't have to look any different. They're going to look the same for for most things, so you can be quite versatile with it. Right. Yeah. You feel that way. Yeah, I, yeah. I've i had a lot of people asking me, because I've been accumulating Soviet sailor models, asking me, oh, what, you know, because I guess you're used to me going with very specific historical forces like my Auto-Sahariana um, and my Battle of the Bulge, Panzer Brigade 150 and stuff like that. And so they've come to me and said, oh, you know, what battle are you doing? And I've gone, I don't know. I have this. And I thought by getting an entire Soviet naval force, I would be narrowing it down quite a bit. No. Soviet naval troops fought all over the place and for huge chunks of the war. Um, so, yeah, I have a lot more research to do before I actually start army building. There's a really, there's a really good article um I think it's a really old one, but it's still still on mm. the Flames of War website, yeah. and it runs down each of the naval brigades and where they fought. It's that's so right. cool. It's a great great starting point. Yeah, that's uh, where I like, looked and went. They fought how many places? And went, oh, I gotta narrow this down. Well, Brad, well, Brad the eighty third naval brigade fought in Budapest. Hey. So if you wanted to, if you wanted, if you wanted to take your flotilla up the Danube and then disembark on the on the docks there and come up the hills, then um, you're more than welcome. Well, I, I only have 85 Warlord um, metal miniatures so far, so I think I, need to, I think I need to get a couple more, and then I'll be ready to start painting. Oh, nice. So, um, yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool to hear as well. They're, 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 you don't see the Black Death very much. I've never actually seen them other than Damien Hansen, who's one of our mates up mm. here. He's got a beautiful um, Soviet naval force, but I've that's never awesome. seen anybody else with them, so that's going to be cool to see. Yeah, so, I mean, um, I, I've sort of looked at the next two, well, out of the, the next three main events, um, I've got my armies picked out already. And, yeah. And definitely taking uh, the, well, I've committed to the, the Africa Corps. Um, nice. To Winnicon. Yeah. It's the mixed Africa Corps um, French force in, in the, the Phalanx Legion. Of course um, it I'll is. <laughs> Of course. Well, I've got to have the angle right. No yeah. one would recognise me. He's <laughs> got to have a bit of a French element. There's no way you can get away without yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> um, but the uh, and then I'll be. Uh, I'm definitely taking the Australians for CanCon 2008 uh, 2019. Cool. Um, and I'm spending a lot of time on my Australians to really try to do my absolute best with them. 
Um, and, and that's the intention is to try and put my best foot forward for CanCon 2019. So I'm taking my time. Nice. And then it's just Moab. Um, Moab. So, you know, something like Moab might be a good opportunity to run the IS2. Yeah, that's true. You've got lots of options. You know, what, yeah. you know what I'd love to see you do on your Australians is um, go nuts with the jungle bases and do like little, little like water puddles and swamps and like yeah. uh, lizards even. It's like full on the basing because your, your models are just like out of the park now. Um, yeah. But yeah, just if you're going to lavish, I'd go look at the look at the jungle bases. They're such a cool like palette to work with. And then, yeah, yeah and any sort of display, display board you could do or whatever. Yeah. I think that would be really cool. Yeah, and maybe, I think maybe walk up to the event having not showered for like three weeks and have oh, have um misguided and mud uh, <laughs> throw mud around everywhere. <laughs> I, I find the twenty eight millimeter bases, you know, like um a little bit constrained in into how much story you can tell. Mm. So I feel just like with the infantry models, for example, you've got to have a general theme with the basing. Um, but the weapons teams and the objectives, I really want to go a bit silly with, yeah, uh, like. In the um in in all those bones miniatures that I was talking to you about, there's mm-hmm. a whole bunch of ones where it's like little insects and spiders and and those sort that I could just include in there. Um, nothing like a big sort of you know massive spider coming out to attack the weapons team or something like that. Yeah, that's that's, that's great. Little details. Yeah, little, um, scorpions and whatever else I could think of that that a jungle could come out and hurt people. So, yeah. Well, having grown up traveling throughout Southeast Asia as a kid, I can tell you, it feels like those things could come out of those jungles. So, uh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a bit, it's a bit full on. So, so you got anything else on your plate, Brian, what, that you got coming up? Um, no events, really. I'm just painting like mad with these armies just to get the – because my sort of plan got too big. Um, so the scope, the scope creep if you could call it that, is really out of control at this point. Um, so I've got terrain that I'm going to be working on, like some of the new street barricades that Warlord made for the Battle of Berlin box. Those are so good. Right. Street barricades, yeah. They're on my, they're on my um, workbench. And also I picked up a really cool piece of terrain from a, a very tiny vendor at CanCon who was sort of attached to Eureka Miniatures. And I don't, I don't know the name of them, I'm sorry, but... um. If you contacted Eureka, you might be able to find out who this guy was. But he was selling resin terrain pieces, and one of them was like a a, a, a tram that has been taken really? off the tracks and then turned into a street barricade with all rubble. Really? It. So, oh, that's yeah. awesome. And you, the lid, yeah, and the lid comes off, like the roof of the tram comes off, so you can put squads inside. There's almost like a little building, like a long, thin building that has all the rubble, and um, they use them in Budapest too. So I've been... That's going to be on the on the painting desk with these street barricades. Um, and Dennis has found this website that has it's I think it's called like Budapest poster, and it's literally posters from this that has been on the walls in the city of Budapest throughout history, like so so specific. But you can download these images and print them off. So I'm going to print off a whole bunch of little propaganda posters and stuff from the time, or even just you know consumer good posters from the time and stick them all over the terrain or in the rubble to add that sort of Hungarian element. Should be cool. That's awesome. Um, yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, just terrain, terrain and models for now. And gaming-wise, um, I'll just I'll just be playing garage games for a while, just whenever I can within reason. Yeah. Um, probably in the same setting. Um, and then later in the year, like which is further down the track, and we talk about in other episodes, I'll I'll work out what my other projects will be after this. But there's so many that I'd love to do, like 
like yourself, I like to re revisit my Australians um, and even some Japanese, but that's all down the track. So, now, what about, so So for me, um, the next sort of event, the, the community event that I'll be going to will be WinterCon in July here in Canberra. Following that, I'll be uh, doing my best to attend Moab in Sydney in October. And then the one after that will be, of course, CanCon back here in Canberra in, in, in January 2019. Um, Brad and Brian, if anyone wanted to sort of, you know, think about an event to go to where they might want to catch up with you guys, what does that look like to you, the, the next sort of, you know, six to nine months or so? Brian, why don't you go ahead? Um, so I think I, I, I hope to be at Moab. If, I mean, if I do, I should be running it. Um, just to help out the local guys here because last year I had to take the, the year off being the event organizer because the baby arrives the day after. Mm. Right. <laughs> so that, and, and I think the cool thing was that the, that my daughter was born the day after Moab, which means I've got, um, because of the way the dates will move, I think I've got six years before I, her birthday falls on Moab. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, um, I definitely will see you at Moab, I'm sure. Um, whether I'm running it or or just playing, I'm, I'll probably just rather run it. Um, and CanCon next year for sure, um, that I'll be there. WinterCon, I don't think I'll be able to make this year simply because we've got quite a bit on during winter um, with work, and we'll be away on um, on vacation around that time too. So WinterCon, WinterCon's a much smaller event, so mm. that's all good. I'd rather I'd like to organise more garage games as well this year. I really want to play more. Um, sort of specially designed sort of set up themes games where mm -hmm. we've got ahead of time we've got like a really spectacular table and a cool mission to play and we're just chucking dice you know once once you've set up the armies it, you're already winning because it just looks so cool and you just go for it and, see, and then let the story happen you know we, we need we need a platform again don't we to um to be able to document you know pho photographically document these um these themed games and and to talk about it so is everyone else can jump on yeah, that's another that's another big task for us this year, definitely. Definitely. Um, what about you, Brad? Are you are you uh, looking at sort of any uh, anything outside your local events for the next six to nine months? Well, Melbourne's kind of blowing up. I mean, I know um, Tristan's been talking about running more events than he did last year, which is saying something. Um, and then I'm going to be back to running events. So there's going to be a lot going on in Melbourne town, um, which suits me quite well, given. Um, that uh, getting out of town is often difficult for me these days um, with the family and all. But um, I am hoping, and I say this wincing and knocking on wood, uh, that I will be attending CanCon 2019. Um, Please, that's going to be great. A lot of people will be that. It's been a yeah. long time. I haven't actually been to CanCon since I won. Three. Yeah. It's been three years um three it was the same it was the same year that i think it was might even be four years it's been a long time because it was before i started my master's and that took three years so um yeah cancon yeah. cancon 2019 if, if you're going to be looking for an event to go to mm. um i think cancon 2019 is going to build up on, on springboarding from from 18 mm. um where we had like 60 people and uh even just today i was two of my mates um who didn't go to to they they did another game system this cancon have already started committing and planning their armies and, and purchasing armies for cancon mm -hmm. 2019 
So there's a lot of um, momentum towards it, and uh, it's going to be a good lead-in. Definitely. One, I've got a lot of awesome local players at the moment, and I had a really good run of playing a lot of games of Bolt Action and Conflict 47, which is kind of Bolt Action, um, at the end of last year and beginning of this year. And it was it was just great. I really got my sea legs back around me. Um, and then, you know, playing in a few local events really kind of got me kind of swinging again. And so I think it's definitely time for me to pull off the kid gloves um, and get a few new army projects on the go and uh, see if I can paint something in less than two years um, and take something new to CanCon this year. So uh, we'll see. Um, I have, I mean, I feel bad. Uh, years and years ago, Tristan talked about no one played fins. Um, <laughs> then I pointed out that I'd, I'd been painting fins for like on and off for two years at that point. He's now run full gambit and have played through his fins and is now selling them. And I still have yet to put mine on a board in an event, um, given how much time and effort I've put in. I may just, you know, put a little bit more and finish them, um, finish them, and then, <laughs> um, sorry, and uh, maybe take those to CanCon this year. So I've got a, t- uh, it's actually turning out to be a pretty massive army. So, um, yeah, that might be fun. Well, there, was, there wasn't one fin player there last year, Brad, so that'd be awesome to see. Yeah, but I really want to sort of buck the late war fin trend that you see in a lot of fin events um or continuation war no trend, um, there's no trend at all we don't even see him i've never seen a finnish army on the table here in sydney or Canberra. you might get a few in, in melbourne maybe but there's they're not around it's like same with japanese it's all those sort of armies just want to see more of those for variety and partisans yeah. you know the big one that i've seen up for which are really cool yeah, I'm thinking possibly I have this beautiful Japanese army that I had uh, a friend, High Patch, um, help me paint the infantry for. Um, this the great co-Japanese that definitely need uh, some serious gameplay, especially since I've been going through the Empires, um, Empires and Flames book. Uh, I recently interviewed Andy Chambers um, for the Warlord cast, and we were talking about that book sort of off-air, and it really reminded me how much good stuff is in there um, for the Japanese. And so I've gone back through. Um, I've been talking with some friends, um, you know, Luke Emerton, um, and some really, you know, prolific Japanese players. Um, and it just reminded me how the Japanese, they're such a rich and interesting army. And how often in events, you, when we do see them, they're the same thing. You see a wall of spearmen or you see a wall of you know, inexperienced riflemen, um, or it's all late war jungle stuff. And I've got a winter Japanese army that's based on regular troops um, that is Manchuria-based. Now, that eliminates a huge amount of what the Japanese could take. Um, And so I've really sort of narrowed it down to a very fine window of sort of 1930s slash, and I've just recently realized, rereading the Empires and Flames book, the 1945, like the last five minutes of the war, literally, the Japanese army yeah. were fighting off Soviets, and you and I'm thinking, I I haven't I have a selector for that, um, and it's great because it's it's using a lot of Japanese armor and units that you don't see that often, because it was the Manchurian forces, and they were using this weird bastardization of like semi quote-unquote modern for the Japanese equipment at that point, but a lot of stuff was from early 1930s as well, even though it's 1945, and they're throwing it up against, you know, IS-2s, possibly IS-3s, 
you know, SC-152s. Yeah, that's the Kwantung Army. It was, um, yeah. it was more like a, it started off as like the elite place, like because it was the front line at the start of their experience in the 30s. And then they wanted to hold on to it. And as the war dragged on in the Pacific, it got drained of all its more experienced troops. And they were sort of more of a garrison force by the end. But because of their, you know, they couldn't control the sea lanes or their resupply, they couldn't get their modern tanks into that area. So that whatever was there in the thir- late 30s stayed there because they yeah. couldn't resupply or change them out. So by 45, yeah, you had IS-2s rolling over tankettes and stuff. But it's fascinating right because so many of the, the quote-unquote new modern tanks for the Japanese were pulled back to the home islands for defense. Um, so they wouldn't have That's been true. even, they didn't even try and get them over, you know, to Manchuria in the first place. But as you say, yeah. they, they were this, this garrison force. But people sort of, they neglect to think of how big it is. I've read conflict, conflicting accounts, but something like 60% of the Japanese military in total like land troops were in China for World War II, yeah. if not yeah. more. And you're just going, I'm sorry, how many soldiers were there? Like just sitting there holding down the fort? It's, it's a massive number. And you never see those forces on the tabletop. No, well, that's the thing. We, don't, we only see it from our, usually our own Western culture's eyes. So um like you've got your matching chinese force these guys are perfect mm-hmm. for that whole war on on china's soil so it's gonna be cool to see i reckon that's a that's going back to the start of the episode that's like a um a potentially best army in the making because you've got a really cool specific story and a theme already and you know that's that's all the ingredients you need right there i've i've recently having gone found found you know that selector or those selectors those paired selectors circa 19 i think 37 and 1945 um, I actually went digging through that book and through the Japanese book and pulled out a few units that no one makes. Um, and it turns out someone makes them on Shapeways. And so I've, I'm going back to the States shortly, and so I've had them shipped to my parents' house, 3D printed and shipped to my parents' house, and yes. I'm going to pick them up. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at having, you know, a, 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 some really interesting weapons to throw in that Japanese army. Um, I don't want to necessarily start listing stuff because I don't have the theater selectors in front of me, but I really want to take something that's heavily themed, that is based solely on history, that is really different and interesting and makes people go, Japanese did what? And go, yep, this is real. This is, this is what was there. So, yeah, I'm really I, I passionate. Think, I, think what we should, I think what we should do is do a whole episode or at least um, a major segment on the next episode about how do you go about creating a, like a strongly themed historical force for bolt action because I think it's not as easy as it actually sounds. Agreed. So I think it's worth using your army as an example. What if we all did that next episode, bring mm-hmm. a project to the table? It might be one we've done in the past or one we're planning on where you can talk about how we went about it and what people can do to get the information they need that's relevant yeah. because a lot of the historical information out there is so zoomed out on such a huge level like a broad stroke oh you know this the 14th army moved here and mm-hmm. you know did this and it's like well that doesn't help you when you're designing a platoon at a platoon level so how do you find that information about what would be relevant to a bolt action force so i think it's worth helping people with a segment on that next time because it is is a challenge it's almost an art form in itself because um bolt action itself doesn't help you that much with that no no, I've, and it was one of those things that uh, of all the new players at the event I just had, quite a few of them were messaging me a couple of weeks before going, 
is this historical? How does this work? And I would say, well, I'm not sure. I don't know your unit. What's the name of it? And I would actually, I was doing research for people to confirm yeah. whether or not they had half tracks. Um, and you're going, yeah, I think they had this there. Um, but, you know, as you say, it takes time and it takes, it, sometimes it takes some effort. And I wasn't going to research eight new armies while I was trying to finish my own Auto Sahariana force for Operation Heavy and was going, ah, too much research. But just having a conversation about how to go about doing that, I think, would be really helpful for folks. Yeah, I think we should do it. Yeah, sounds good. All right, gang, you heard it here first. Next episode of The Gap, how to research your bolt-action armies, or at least how we do it. And if you know of something that, you know, some resources that you could possibly share, um, you can contact us at the Bolt Action Alliance Facebook group, uh, and you might be able to share something with us. Um, likewise, if you have enjoyed anything on this particular episode, I know we've sort of talked about a lot of things tonight, but, uh, if there's anything that you would like to share, um, be, you know, I didn't like this bit, I do like this bit, or I really enjoyed, um, when Brian was talking about the Budapest project, I have something that, you know, I, I found out this neat fact, maybe you'd like to know. Or can you t- talk more about that in a future episode? Please send us feedback. We do love to hear from you. Um, if you would like to speak to me personally, I'm actually in a different, um, on a different page. You can find me on the Cast Dice slash Land O Misfit Toys. That's Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. Uh, on Facebook, if you type that in, you'll find that page. And you can message me there. Um, on behalf of the Ghost Army Podcast, I would like to thank you for listening to us. I know there are quite a few Bolt Action podcasts these days, um, and I know we were quiet for a while, and it's lovely to be back, um, and we uh, thank you for your patronage. Gentlemen, anything you would like to say before we go out this evening? No. See you later. Catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>